there! Welcome to this October 10th of Poverty Unpacked. And my name is Katie Rulen, and I'm your host of this podcast. And I will also be taking you through some news and new books that I've been looking at this month. And it's been a busy month, not least because a few days ago it was the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. It's celebrated annually on the October 17th. And it really is a way of trying to promote understanding and dialogue between people living in poverty and a wider society. It was first put in place in, I believe, 1992, or that's when it was recognized by the United Nations. And since then, a lot of organizations working on poverty have used that opportunity, as happens with a lot of international days, to shine a light on issues of poverty, but also really give voice to people living in poverty to share their experiences. And before I dive into some of the other content I want to share with you today, I do really want to highlight the work by ATD Fourth World, who've been instrumental in putting this day forward as an international day in the calendar every year, and who also every year in New York at the UN organize an event that deliberately tries to put in, in contact people with lived experience and UN stakeholders and others to have a dialogue and really make sure that those voices um, and experiences of people who live poverty every every day are heard by people who mostly sit in offices but do take important decisions about lives, um, especially for those with lower incomes. So if you haven't heard of ATD Fourth World before, please go and check them out. They're a membership organization, so they have locations in New York, but also in countries um, like the UK, the Netherlands and France, um, as well as in more um, global south countries such as Haiti. All right, then. So what did I want to share with you today? Well, first off is in relation to two events that I participated in, in fact, co-organized in the last month that spoke to the issue of poverty, of course, and also social protection or anti-poverty strategies. The first one was at the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton, my previous employer, where I, with old colleagues, co-organized a three-day conference on reimagining social protection. There was lots of sharing of new research, new ideas, things to think about in the expansion of social protection policies, especially in lower and middle-income countries. But the one session I was probably most proud of and um, passionate about was the one that we organized on lived experience. This was, no coincidence, with ATD Fourth Worlds in collaboration with them, ATD Fourth Worlds UK, and with Black Sash and Women on Farms Project in South Africa. So we had a panel with four esteemed panelists, two from South Africa and two from the UK, who shared their thoughts on the welfare or social protection schemes as they're implemented in their countries and the struggles especially for those who need the support the most, have in accessing social protection. Now, after the panel session, ATD Fourth World published a blog post about this, sharing some of the experiences of the reflections, I should say, and also some of the insights that one of the panelists, Pet Bailey from ATD Fourth World, shared when she was on the panel. So let me read you the intro that we gave to this panel as we were getting started. Um, and that was very much myself setting out the context and why we also 
had people from South Africa and insights from the UK in this panel. In many countries, such as South Africa, social protection has been expanding. In the UK, benefits have become a lot less generous in recent decades. In both contexts, people with lived experience are very rarely consulted on new policies or any changes to existing schemes. They're also, left, they're also often left out of conversations that take place in academic or policy-oriented conferences. In this conference, however, there's a panel dedicated to lived experience so that conference participants can hear and learn from those with first-hand experience of gaining access to social protection and having to negotiate their rules for eligibility and compliance along the way. So this was setting the scene for the discussion. And then lived experience expert Patricia Bailey offered some thoughts on the difficulties in trying to meet those criteria for getting in the UK universal credit and what that does to people's mental health, to their feelings of self-esteem, to their worthiness, really. So in her reflections, she says, here in the UK, since 2013, they've been putting all the different benefits into just one scheme called universal credits. When they started, they kept saying it would make sure that work always pays by making sure we didn't lose benefits by working extra hours. But as someone who has always worked, including all the way through the pandemic, when I was working in train stations to help travellers, I can tell you that universal credit is a bloody nightmare. First of all, you can't even apply for it without having an email address and access to the internet. But if you've never used a computer before, you're out of luck because no one has time to show you. So you had better find a way to figure out quickly before it's someone else's turn to use the computer. Patricia goes on to say that there are issues around the length of time it takes before you actually receive the first installment of a universal credit. There's a waiting period of, um, I believe, six weeks. And that means a lot of universal credit beneficiaries are in debt before they even start receiving their benefits. There's also an issue with the notion that work always pays. If you do work and you earn income, your benefit amount is recalculated. And that means that the month after you've worked, you might actually receive a lot less than you were accounting for because your benefit is lowered as you've earned additional income. And this creates a lot of confusion, a lot of stress, and a lot of uncertainty because you never quite know how much money you have this month or next month to spend and help you get through the month. So these are some of the things that Patricia shared. We also heard from Joanne from South Africa about her experiences in accessing child support grants and other grants in South Africa. And again, a lot of hoops to jump through, issues with um, online applications, and all in all, painting a picture that, in fact, these schemes, even though they try to help people, are really stressful. They're really hard to get access to and in many respects also set up in a way to make it so difficult so that nobody tries to um, exploit the system, but thereby actually punishing the people who really need it and, and giving an impression that um, they really shouldn't be asking for support. It was an important session to have in the conference, I think, many times in academic conferences. We have a lot of interesting research, a lot of valuable evaluations, new ideas, but often it's quite 
distanced from the day-to-day -day reality on the ground. So this was a real reality check. And a lot of participants in the conference felt it was very valuable to have those discussions um, and insights. That's the first event um, and the reflections I wanted to share with you. The other one was a few weeks later at the Open University and the Center for the Study of Global Development, where I'm currently based, where we held a two-day international workshop, a hybrid one. So we had people in the room and online around poverty, and it was called Poverty Reduction, Rethinking Policy and Practice. So this was really framed around the idea that we have until 2030 to hit the sustainable development goal of eradicating extreme poverty and the notion that we are way off. We just came out of a pandemic. We saw poverty rates go up. We are living in a world where there's multiple crises coexisting at the same time, whether that's conflicts, climate change, or more individual or household-based shocks around loss of jobs, having to deal with inflation, etc. And that means people's lives are becoming increasingly volatile and precarious. So we wanted to convene people, and this was primarily an academic workshop, to talk about new ideas and research in thinking about how we look at poverty, how we measure poverty maybe, but also crucially, how we can work towards the goal of reducing poverty. On the day of the eradication of, of poverty, on the 17th of October, co-organizer Vidya Diwakar from the Institute of Development Studies and the Chronic Poverty Advisory Network and myself published a blog across the various websites of our institutes, as well as the kind sponsors of the workshop, the DSA and the AYADI networks, with some key reflections and takeaway messages after two days of very interesting conversations. And it was called Forging Renewed Commitments Towards Eradicating Extreme Poverty. And let me just read you some of our thoughts. We had four main reflections in terms of thinking about the way forward. And the first one is around the need to link poverty eradication to the climate change agenda. We kicked off the conference, sorry, the workshop actually with a presentation by Andy Sumner and Arif Anshuri about projections of poverty rates towards 2030. And they very much confirmed that we are way off. And the best case scenario is that there are stagnating poverty rates, but really in some places they could be rising even further in the coming years. And what we see in conjunction with those rates is this increased level of volatility, the many more shocks that people have to face with, and climate is at the top of many of these. It hits everybody around the world pretty much in different ways, but of course people living in poverty are far more affected. They have less ability to respond if climate shocks occur they're less able to mitigate the risks of climate change. So uh, we say in this blog post, linking the poverty eradication and climate change agendas more closely could be a means of renewing international commitments towards poverty reduction, given the reinforcing relationships that underpin these global challenges. Um, so really a call to link those two agendas. The second point builds on this, and this is about balancing resilience building with recovery programming. So the blog reads, 
Intersecting crises only amplify the scale of the challenges experienced by people in and near poverty and can act to drive downward mobility, as we observed during the COVID-19 pandemic. There is, moreover, a convergence of conflict fatalities, climate-related disasters and high numbers of people in and near poverty in certain low- and lower-middle-income countries. In this context, anti-poverty programming that seeks to respond to intersecting crises requires strengthening. Resilience building is one such means of preemptively addressing multiple crises. So here the argument is that we see a lot of focus on trying to help people to move out of poverty, including after uh, the occurrence of a shock. But in the face of so many different crises, knowing that they will push people in poverty, especially those who are already living quite vulnerable lives, actually more efforts or at least more balanced efforts should also be allocated towards resilience building, um, diversification of livelihoods, insurance programs, etc. So that if a crisis occurs, and particularly there are economic consequences of them, people don't immediately fall into poverty. The third point we make is around responding to structural change within decent work and social protection strategies. So we make the point that there is a lot of new initiatives and exciting new ideas, exploration of new programming within social protection, for example, or anti-poverty programming, but that we also need to think more about the enabling environment and pushing back against structural drivers of poverty or structural issues that keep people trapped uh, in poverty. Structural factors, including the continued manifestations of global coloniality and macro policies to stimulate economic growth, establish labor market conditions, or prioritize public spending, ultimately determine the conditions for success of poverty reduction interventions. An important recurrent theme was the enormous cost of mounting levels of debt for many low-income countries and the considerable pressures this puts on their public resources. So yes, very much think about what kind of interventions and programs can help people in their day-to-day -day lives, protect them against the effects of poverty, help them move out of poverty, but see that within the wider system, ecosystem, that keeps people trapped in poverty. So we can also definitely avoid individualizing the problem and pl um, placing the responsibility with people in poverty, which is certainly often an issue when we only look at the intervention side and trying to change behaviors of people experiencing poverty. And then finally, the point is about the so-called comply side and the people working in interventions or implementing policies, whether that's social policy or healthcare policy or education policy, something that's often overlooked, certainly in social protection research or anti-poverty programming evaluations. It's about centering frontline workers when we think about programming, when we consider how to tweak programs. And so we write, the human relationships linking people in poverty to higher level policymaking are often overlooked or undervalued, yet remain vital in achieving poverty reduction. Community leaders, frontline workers, and shopkeepers that sell subsidized foods, for example, are at the forefront of delivering services and often also wield considerable power over the allocation of resources themselves. There's a need here, it's the argument, to focus much more on these workers, 
from the human perspective, because they hold these direct relationships with the people they serve, but also because they hold power. They often have a stake in the allocation of resources, whether that's cash for a cash transfer, whether that's food for subsidized food items, being much more aware of the role they play and how they experience the role they play is vital in making the program elements much more efficient, effective, but also dignified. These are our reflections from that workshop, and I'll put the link to this blog post as well as the post I mentioned earlier in the notes to this program. It's been a very stimulating month, to say the to say the least, in thinking about where we might take this agenda next. But there's also been many other ideas put forward and also books been published that I look forward to further stimulate my thinking. And I want to pick up on two of those and, and share them with you. The first one is not centrally focused on poverty, but a very big theme that that we focus on within the podcast, and that's uh, around shame and stigma. And so there's a new book, book published by David Keane called Shame, the Politics and Power of an Emotion. And it's a very detailed interrogation of the concept of shame, the idea of shame, but also attached to the notion of shamelessness in current politics. He starts off by tracking the trends in the use of these words and shows a massive increase in us uh, in societies talking about shame or referring to shamelessness in the last 20 years. And then throughout the book, very systematically discusses the topic in relation to different issues. So let me pull up the table of contents. He talks about Brexit, for example. He talks about shame and mass violence. He talks about it in relation to Trump and Trump's politics. But what I find particularly interesting is this combined discussion of shame and shamelessness. There's been quite some discussion and a few books really on the use of shame in society in regulating behavior. Um, and I'm reminded here, for example, about, um, of the book called Is Shame Necessary by Jennifer Jaquette, which was published a few years ago which is called the Shame Necessary, New Users for an Old Tool, where she very much advocates for shame as an instrument to especially put governments and large corporations to hold them accountable when it comes to big societal issues, so for example, pollution or tax evasion. So she writes in, in her blurb in the front cover, from the mimes hired by the mayor of Bogota in the fight against bad driving behavior to the online list published by the state of California singling out the top 500 businesses and individuals who aren't paying their taxes, Shekhat uses real-life examples to show how shaming is relevant to the 21st century. Detailing how to change behavior, she outlines seven habits of highly effective shaming that will allow us to make companies act ethically hold governments to account when they ignore laws and get more people to cast their votes. Shaming works best when used sparingly, but when applied in just the right way, in just the right quantity, and at just the right time, it can perhaps keep us from failing ourselves and the planet. Now, I haven't read Keane's book just yet. From reading the introduction, um, I get a sense that there is um, a similar argument in there. Shame can be dangerous if used 
in relation to individuals. And for those of you who know John Ronson's book, if you've read So You're Been Publicly Shamed, you will have a sense of the risks of really focusing shame on individuals. Um, but Keane also then speaks about the shamelessness that is increasingly pervasive in politics. Populist politicians like Trump or Bolsonaro being able to get away with shameless behavior or Boris Johnson in the UK, for example, with the COVID pandemic parties being a prime example. And it's a new way of tackling the notion of shame and it uses this combined discussion of shame and shamelessness, which I'm very interested to read about. So let me also then refer back to the topic of poverty more specifically, because Keane does discuss it in his book. And again, this is just from the introduction. Perverse distributions of shame can also be observed within profoundly unequal economic systems with poorer people experience in relation to their own poverty while those who have actively shaped and benefited from these unequal economic systems frequently exhibit a remarkable shamelessness. So there you go. I think a really helpful way of understanding the two-sided notion of shame, also in relation to poverty. So I will definitely put that book on my reading list. Another book that's going on my reading list is one that is much more centrally focused on poverty. And it's called The Escape from Poverty, Breaking the Vicious Cycles Perpetuating Disadvantaged. And it was very appropriately published on the 17th on that International Day for the Eradication of Poverty by the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, Olivier Schutter, who was a guest on our podcast a few years ago. Um, I will make sure to put a link to that episode in the show notes as well especially because I get a sense that a lot of the things he discussed in that episode are also featured in this book. It's co-authored with Hugh Fraser, Anne-Catherine Guillot and Eric Malier, who are also very well-known researchers when it comes to poverty. And the book really zooms in on the intergenerational persistence of poverty, why it happens, and what the things are that we need to do to break that cycle. So let me read you from this introduction as well. Why, in a world of plenty, are we failing to eradicate poverty? This collective failure, we believe, is because we only rarely move beyond the symptoms to address the root causes, particularly in early childhood, of the intergenerational perpetuation of poverty. Because of the efforts of governments being obstructed, in particular as a result of mistaken beliefs concerning merit and incentives, because of the self-interest of and exploitation by some who control excessive wealth and resources, and because of a failure to properly assess the costs to society of poverty and inequalities. So this argument is slightly reminiscent of an article I discussed in uh, August's chat, which was David Brady's article in Science Advances, sorry, in Science Advances, called Poverty Not the Poor, where he argues we should move away from focusing on people's behavior and culture as if that's the main problem underlying poverty, much more on political explanations and the structural, again, the structural factors that keep people in poverty. And so the Schutter, together with his co-authors, makes a similar argument and then goes into quite a lot of detail in terms of how to promote equality of opportunity, focusing in on 
early childhood education, for example, and also uh, issues around housing, nutrition. So it's a very multidimensional way of looking at poverty. It's certainly not about the economic side only. One particular point to make here is that there's a very deliberate choice to talk about intergenerational perpetuation of poverty rather than the intergenerational transmission of poverty, which is a term that we often hear in research or really any discussion about poverty occurring across generations. Poverty activists have been very clear that this kind of language, use of words around poverty can be very stigmatizing, is very unhelpful. It suggests that poverty can be transmitted from adults to children, from one generation to the next. And really, in doing so, places the blame with individuals and families rather than recognizing that there are these structural and systemic issues. This was also discussed in a blog post, again, the link to which I will put in the show notes. That's it. That's what I wanted to share with you in October. I hope you have a lovely month. There's plans for our next episode with external guests come November, but you will hear more when that comes. So that leaves me to say, watch this space. Leave us a review if you can. Let us know what you would like to hear about next and join us again next time. Thank you.